It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan on Quartz 96 FM. Good morning and welcome to Wednesday's Opinion Line. Fiona Corcoran still here for PJ Coogan. They haven't kicked me out yet, so I must be doing something okay. Uh, A busy show for you this morning. The latest on the teacher's vaccine row coming up in just a few minutes. Also later in the show, I'll be chatting to one of Ireland's leading wedding planners on how couples are dealing with the ongoing uncertainty around how many guests they might actually have at their big day. Plus, do you have smallies who are just not interested in joining clubs or going to dance? classes should you be worried about their social skills I'll be chatting to child psychologist Catherine Hallisey later in the show do get in touch with us our lines are open at 1850-715-996 you can text or whatsapp 083-396-9696 and the email is opinion at 96fm.ie now first the education minister Norma Foley is sticking to her position that teachers will not be prioritised in the vaccine rollout schedule teachers unions are expected to table a motion around now demanding that they be prioritised. If a resolution isn't found, other options are likely to be explored, including and up to industrial action. Let's have a listen to what Norma Foley had to say to the INTO virtual conference yesterday. Professor Karina Butler of NIAC has confirmed that if we were to compare a person aged between 30 and 35 with a person aged between 60 and 65. The person aged between 60 and 65 years old is 70 times more likely to die as a result of COVID-19 than a younger person. Fundamentally, this recommendation has been driven by the fact that national and international evidence now confirms that age is the strongest predictor of whether a person who contracts COVID-19 will be admitted to hospital or ICU, or die as a result of their infection. Joining me now is Sinn Féin spokesperson on education and Cork North Central TD, Dunica O'Leary. Good morning, Dunica. Good morning, Fiona. How are you? Uh, you heard what uh, Norma Foley had to say there. What's your reaction to that? Well, like, I mean, I think, you know, first of all, I think it was profoundly wrong that a decision like this was made without any consultation. You know, the return to, to work for... A lot of workforces, there's a, there's a big focus on teachers uh, this week with the conferences, obviously, and appropriately. But we also need to take into account that there are other workers within schools, including SNAs, and more broadly, Gardaí, who are at the front line of dealing with the mandatory quarantine, and other frontline workers, including in transport and, and food. Um, and in terms of them returning to, to the workplace, 
case, there were significant negotiations, some of them were fraud, which is understandable in this context. So commitments were made uh, to those workers uh, and they've now been broken. And I think it was very wrong to blind egg workers. And I don't think it should ever have been just flatly presented to such workers as a done deal and in a unilateral way like that. So from our point of view, yes, it is undoubtedly the case that age is the biggest determinant. Age is the biggest thing that will decide uh, if you get very severely ill. But there are also other high-risk settings, uh, aside from how high-risk a person is, where people are in close contact with many other people. And you can see that where the cases are located. And there are significant amount of cases coming out of childcare. There are significant amount of cases coming out of education. So in that context, if we as a society decide, and I think we should decide, that things such as keeping our schools open and ensuring that we have education over the course of summer in terms of summer provision and other camps like that, um, and if we want to keep childcare open, then we do need to protect those workers to ensure that the system doesn't break down. And that's what we are calling on the government now to go back and look at that again to ensure that those services remain open. They are so important for us that we have transport working, that we have education open, that we have childcare on a sustainable and safe basis. Norma Foley is adamant that the decision to change the rollout plan um, is based on um, age and it's uh, dictated by the science. Do you not accept that then? I mean, I know you were saying there that it has to go by age as well, but with a priority for people working on the front line. But I mean, where... You know, where do you draw the line then? Like, if you if you do vaccinate the teachers and the guards and all the people in the retail, you know, it's it's. What about the older people then in society who are still waiting? Oh well, there's no dispute that the the elderly should be uh, among the highest priority, and that was obviously the case in the previous prioritisation. Uh, those with underlying conditions and those in the oldest age quarters should absolutely be first along with those who are frontline healthcare workers. Now, most of those have been prior to, have been vaccinated at this stage, but kind of somewhere between stage three and four, because these aren't linear, you know, they do kind of overlap uh, to an extent. We're not saying, and I don't think anyone in those frontline uh, non-healthcare worker groups, including, you know, as I say, retail, transport, education, none of them are saying that they should be ahead of the most vulnerable. They absolutely have to be completed before we move on to any other kind of frontline workers. Uh, but I think if you look at the previous prioritisation that had those categories at the front uh, and then your frontline workers and then, uh, you know, the lower age cohorts. So, you know, it has been achieved elsewhere that you have an approach that is mostly age based, but has an element of focus on those groups of workers. And it isn't an endless list. I have identified a number of them there, but it isn't an endless list because it was identified in the previous prioritisation that you do prioritise them as well, because they're, you know, how at risk a setting is does matter. Somebody who is 55 years of age, but is a lawyer working at home uh, and, you know, doesn't, you know, I suppose is primarily based there, isn't at the same risk as a 35-year-old SNA uh, in a special school. It is obviously very, very different. It's it's not the same as a 35-year-old Garda who is involved in enforcing mandatory quarantine with people who might be tra- after travelling from uh, an area of high infection and don't want to comply. So, you know, I think there has to be a recognition that frontline workers do need to be a priority within an age-based system. Uh, and I do think that the previous prioritisation mostly achieved that I'm not saying we necessarily have to go back to the exact same sequencing as we had on Monday or Tuesday of last week. I think that will have to be negotiated. But I think somewhere between the current vaccination prioritisation and what was there at the start of last week makes sense that we, yes, 
do it by age, that's effective, it recognises the highest risk, but protects those services that we decide uh, we really want to keep going. And I, for me, education is vitally important that we keep schools open and that they reopen successfully in September and that we have bigger than ever programmes during the summer in terms of summer provision and day summer camps. But if the science says that age is the way to go, should we just not listen to the science? Is that not the safest sequencing to follow or do you just not buy that from Norma Foley? I do accept that and I'm saying that. Like, I mean, that it needs to be primarily age-based. We've never disputed that. The original approach was primarily age-based. There are, you know, over 5 million people in the state, over 6 million people on the island. The kind of cohort that we're talking about is in the tens of thousands. Um, So could that cohort... um, probably less than 100,000, be fitted in uh, at a relatively early stage while still for the vast majority of the 5 million people being vaccinated that you do it by age. Of course you can. Uh, there's no reason you couldn't. All education workers could probably be done within a week. All education workers on Gardaí could probably be done within a week. All those categories could probably be done within a fortnight. So you can do that at the same time that you're doing some of the higher age cohorts and then work down. Uh, and in terms of the general population who are not in frontline workers, those who are youngest should, of course, uh, be uh, at the end because they are the uh, those who are least at risk. But can you fix in, as well as an overall age-based approach, which you have a cohort here, frontline workers that are essential key services going. Can you do that in an early stage? Of course you can. The business group ISME, which represents an awful lot of people in the retail sector, is saying this morning that the government should hold firm to do otherwise would open a free-for-all. Do you agree with that? Like, What would your reaction be to that? I, I Look, I mean, that they're entitled to that view. I don't think it would be a free-for-all. Like, I mean, I think uh, a statement like that is as if there was no... You know, that history began on Thursday and that there wasn't a widely accepted and uncontroversial prioritisation list before that where frontline workers were prioritised and where there wasn't a free-for-all. If this had never changed, nobody would be saying anything about a free-for-all or anything like that. So I'm not saying you necessarily have to go back to exactly a carbon copy of that, but I think there were elements of that previous plan that did make sense, that was underpinned by science, but was also underpinned by a recognition of what we value in society, what the services we want, and the workers that we respect in retail, in food, in the Gardaí, uh, SNAs, teachers and childcare staff. You know, So mm-hmm. I think there was a recognition of that. Um, I don't think it would be free for all at all. Uh, it would have to be negotiated, obviously, and I think, obviously, that would have to involve further engagement with NIAC, but I think it's entirely deliverable, and I think it would involve uh, respect for those frontline workers who've made an awful lot of sacrifices, put themselves at risk, and also are keeping uh, our society far more so than the economy, which maybe which is what Izmi is worried about, but far more so than the economy, our society going. If the teachers do decide to go as far as industrial action over this, will will you be supporting them in this? First, I, like, I, mean, I don't think anyone wants to see industrial action. I don't mm-hmm. think that the teachers want to see it either. We want to see, you know, and that's why vaccination is being talked about really is because we want to see schools stay open. They've been closed for, for far too long now. An awful lot of children have lost out very significantly. What we need to be doing now is focusing, and to be honest, the Minister of Speech didn't talk enough about this yesterday at the teachers' conferences, as to how we ensure children catch up from the enormous education loss that happened despite efforts, best efforts, despite the efforts of parents, despite the efforts of school staff, despite the efforts of the children themselves. But there has been a loss. So we need to make up that ground. We don't need to see schools closed. I don't think the teachers want industrial action. Uh, but there is a responsibility on the minister to avert this. She can't just ignore it. She has uh, further engagements. She's speaking at the teacher conferences, the two secondary school unions today. I think she needs to, to get into this a bit more. 
to actually explore the issues that we're talking about here. Those questions put to her morning Ireland that she frankly didn't answer. Mm. Um, and I think she needs to address that. I don't believe that there will be industrial action. Uh, I think that is unlikely. Well, it is on the minister to avert that. Uh, but I don't think anyone wants to see a strike. And I don't think we're going... I, I, my view is that we're probably not going to see that. But if there is a vote for a strike, will Sinn Féin be giving their backing? Well, like, I mean, look, we'll see what happens with the vote and we'll see the circumstances because an awful lot of what's on the ballot is, you know, talking about engagement and discussion and things like that. And, you know, in my view, there's a huge responsibility on the government here to, to properly engage and properly negotiate. They just treated it as a as an assumption that everyone would be, you know, would just have to accept this. They never negotiated, they never engaged um, with the representatives of workers in education or any of the other sectors. Um, so I think that that's what needs to happen next. So, look, I hope that there's not industrial action. I accept that every trade union has a right to decide what they're going to do in terms of industrial action. That's a matter for their members. They'll vote on that today and then they'll vote at some later stage whether they want to take further action because that would be probably necessary but um, as in it would be necessary from a legal point of view if they wanted to go further but uh, for me I don't want to see industrial action and I don't think it's going to happen. Let's bring it back to parents and kids. As a stand, schools are due to open to everyone from Monday. There's a lot of children who haven't actually been back to school since before Christmas. And for a lot of parents, that's the biggest thing for them right now, isn't it? It's getting their kids back to school, getting them back into that system and getting them back into that routine. Absolutely. Like, I mean, I think it is enormous. As I say, so much has been lost. Um, so many children, I suppose, especially from disadvantaged backgrounds, but also those from special education. And I was very critical of government for the fact that there were some children with special educational needs, particularly at secondary level, who are only going back on Monday, um, who haven't had a day in school since January. And they should have been, for me, a much higher priority than, than some of the other uh, groups um, in terms of the sequencing of it. But... Um, like, I mean, I think what we need to be doing now from Monday is, like, I mean, there needs to be a focus on ensuring that kids are doing okay and that they're supporting their well-being, but also that there is a catch-up, uh, particularly over the course uh, of the summer months, because there's only so many weeks of school left. So those in most need, I think, deserve very significant support over the summer. That's why we're calling for a larger-than-ever program of summer provision. I think a lot of parents were disappointed with the extent of the program their children got last summer. Uh, so we need to uh, we need to ensure that that is larger than ever and a, a significant amount of hours given to each child uh, and also the DESH summer camps. And I think that needs to be expanded beyond just those in DESH schools. I think those who are from a background disadvantage, whether they're in a DESH school or not, should be able to access these camps as well to ensure that they can catch up. Uh, but for the body of children as a whole, we do need that routine. We do need to keep schools going and keep them open. To do that, we need to make sure that our schools are safe and sustainable. So there's an awful lot more resources needed. We need, uh, as I say, like I do think vaccination is one of the issues, but it's not just that. It's about money for things like PPE, which was cut back, and other issues like that. I am hopeful and I'm reasonably um, optimistic that schools will remain open between now and the summer, but the government shouldn't be taking it for granted. In some ways they have, because they didn't really put any additional effort in since Christmas uh, into resources and safety measures. Great stuff, Donica. Listen, thank you very much for joining me on the show. What are your thoughts on the teachers and vaccines? Do you agree with the unions or was Norma Foley right when she insisted she wouldn't be changing her mind on the rollout plans? Do get in touch. Our lines are open at 1850 715 996. You can text or WhatsApp 083 396 96 96 and the email is opinion at 96fm.ie.
Now, for something a bit different this morning, uh, you may have heard Marae played out in the news there. Um, have a listen to this. Yes, ABBA's Dancing Queen is apparently the number one song that gets us dancing around the kitchen with the family. And I think we've all been doing an awful lot of that over the last year. Uh, what song gets you going in the kitchen? Have you been having dances around the kitchen? What's your favourite song? I think for me, it has to be one of Whitney Houston's songs or maybe a bit of Madonna. Uh, my husband, when I put those on, just like uh, wants to change it immediately. But um, even for your kids, I was chatting there to Fergal and Terry beforehand and Fergal was saying that... Um, he used to DJ for kids at discos and one of the, the one of the top songs was Mr. President Coco Jambo. So uh, if you have any ideas or any songs that you uh, love to dance around the kitchen to let us know 1850 715 996 or you can text or WhatsApp 083 396 96 96. After the break we'll be heading to Cove where some residents are fed up with the mess left behind by weekend drinkers and gatherings. Join us after the break. This is Cork's Gold Imro Award-winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now. 1850 715 On Cork's 96FM. Welcome back to Wednesday's Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. Fiona Corker in here. Now, yesterday we heard about the issues caused by drinkers in areas like the Lock and Bells Field in the city. But it's not just a city issue. Down in Cove, local residents are fed up with the aftermath caused by outdoor drinking and gatherings at one beauty spot. Labour councillor Cahal Rasmussen joins me on the line now. Cahal, good morning. Good morning, Fiona. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, the Echo has some pictures this morning of the morning after the night before, and it's not a pretty picture. Describe to us what's been going on. I suppose, look, Fiona, this, this is a problem that every town and village in Ireland has, and I suppose we're, we're no exception to it, unfortunately. And um, basically, it's called out by the rocks, really. It's out in the White Point area where young people gather at the weekends um, and have a few drinks um, into the night. And I suppose the difficulty is, is while we obviously you don't want young people to be drinking, you know, during COVID and the whole lot, I suppose the real issue really is the fact that they're leaving the litter around the place afterwards. The bottles are being broken, the cans are being strewn around, there's, the, you know, there's bags and rubbish left there. And then as a result, it's dangerous because of the fact that the glass is broken and if people are walking along the area or if there's dogs walking or being walked by their owners, <coughs> they, they get caught as well. So there are huge issues with it. Then, of course, there's the whole clean-up then, who's going to clean up um, and stuff. So that causes issues. Plus there's the whole noise factor that um, is disturbing the residents in the area. So I suppose this is an issue that you know it happens on a regular basis. Last weekend happened because the weather was so good, I suppose, really. And it was the first time that uh, young people could gather, again, mm. unfortunately, out there, you know. So it is an ongoing problem. I know that there have been concerns expressed here in the city about the summertime coming and the good weather and areas like the Lock and Bells Field being overrun, I suppose, with uh, large crowds drinking. Um, is there a fear like that in, in Cove that, you know, we're going to have a summer like that again? No, I, I suppose, you know, look, I, I suppose young people have been locked down like everybody else for the last 12 months. And I suppose it would be wrong to say that there's a huge, huge issue, but there are g- gangs gathering together. And I know that, you know, people have been advising them, and I'm quite sure they do try and do their best to keep social distance. But the, 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 the reality is that, yeah, there are 
gatherings all over the place really and you know it's unfortunate that it's happening uh, now more than ever um, but I wouldn't say that it's a black spot completely mm. but at the same time it is it is beginning to happen again and I suppose last weekend was the first of the season as I would call it even though people have been out there in the recent past in the winter but not as much because it's, a, it's an open area and it, is, it was very cold up to last weekend. Do you think that it's a societal thing, Carl? Do you think that um, we're just becoming a more dirty society? Because I even see it in a lot of the roads around the place and a lot of walkways where there's people just throwing rubbish everywhere and it's not necessarily, you know, cans and bottles from drink, but there's all, you know, you see the masks, you see coffee cups. Like, do we need to maybe come up with a different way of getting through to people that, you know, just put your rubbish in the bin? Yeah, it's a very fair point. I suppose, look, one of the huge issues that we have as a society is people drop, uh, dropping rubbish. Um, you know, we have a huge issue with uh, dog fouling in the mm. whole country, in the whole county and the whole country. And as a council, we've worked very hard with the local groups and tidy towns and people to try and deal with those issues. But at the end of the day, it's not going to happen overnight. It's an education as well. Um, you, you know, the people, ha- young people have to be taught in school about the rights and wrongs. We do have little wardens in Cove that do go around and do check up on people. I suppose the big diff- difficulty now is that people are getting cuter about it. They just dump it out the window and drive on. And they, they, But you are right, you know, all over the whole county and the whole country, really, there are certain areas where on certain roads there are bags thrown out the windows at night time. There's rubbish left at the sides of the road. From a council point of view, we're on to the local engineer and the local officers every second day looking for, for rubbish to be removed from you know certain areas. In fairness, the Tidy Towns group that we have in Cove, our fabulous group, they work very, very hard. But they're sick and tired of cleaning up the same areas on a regular basis. And I suppose, what is the answer? It's, I suppose it's a combination of a lot of things. It's education. People have to cop on, really. They have to take mm. their rubbish home with them. You know, no one has a problem with people having a picnic or sitting down having a drink if that's what they want to do. But then you must take your rubbish home with you. But as a society, we have we are dirty, unfortunately. And, you know, I know people may, may take offence to that. But, you know, as a race, we have certain people who, who just don't care. They dump it at the side of the road. Um, we had a big discussion in, in um, at a council meeting yesterday <coughs> about Hub Roland Park. Um, the, the rubbish bins have been removed by the council and were never, they are, they're, they're not put in there at all. And I had a motion down to have that discussion because, you know, a lot of people have contacted us about that issue. And I suppose the council's position really is that we're saying, if you bring rubbish with you to wherever it is, if you're out for a walk, if you're out for a cycle, if you're out for a spin, uh, take the rubbish home with you. And I suppose that is, the, that is the new way of doing it now because why should we clean up for somebody else? It's a very difficult um, situation to be in. But unfortunately, as I say, it's a combination of a lot of things. Education, speaking to young people, getting young people involved. But I suppose, you know, it's just the way things are at the moment. And as a result of the fact now that people are locked down as well, that mm. when young people do gather, and it's not just young people, because it'd be wrong just to castigate young people. There are lots of older people who are driving um, along the roads and just dumping rubbish. But it is a huge, huge issue that we're all trying to grapple with. It is. It is indeed. Councillor Rasmussen, thank you very much for joining us this morning. What do you think? Are we becoming a dirty society? Is it something that's annoying you? Our lines are open 1850 715 996. You can text or WhatsApp 083 396 96 96.
we have been getting quite a few comments about the teachers and the vaccines uh, one um, Kate says not once in the whole pandemic did I ever hear a supermarket worker complain about going to work they have a tough job and have been superb in their attitude they have indeed another caller says teachers always complaining about something not in school since Christmas that's from Anya uh, JOD says I cannot believe that there is talk of destabilising the households at this time with a teacher's strike there's enough difficulty raising kids and keeping a job without this additional pressure follow the science Morris says Northern Ireland's health minister says that age cohorts is both the most efficient and fairest system Sinn Féin are in government in the north Northern Ireland too had priority cohorts but switched to age like us why is he Donica O'Leary not endorsing the policy of a government his party is involved in a texter says, why should teachers get a higher priority than retail or your local rural post- postman? Why do they always think they're so entitled? They can blackmail by threatening strike action. An unhappy Paul in West Cork. Another caller got in touch to say there are many of us on the front line delivering essential services, but we all understand that we are privileged to be low risk. We got on with it and it was, and was our hands and are thankful we are not vulnerable and teachers should be no different. What are your views on anything that we've talked about this morning um, with the vaccines? Do you think that teachers should be prioritised? Are we a dirty society? And if you're veering more, towards more light-hearted end of the conversation, what's your favourite dancing song? Uh, t- lines are open 1850-715-996 text or WhatsApp 0833 and the email is opinion at 96fm.ie Pitbull and Neo give me everything there. Maybe that's your dancing song. Uh, let us know 1850 Nine six or the text WhatsApp. Oh wait, oh, sorry, I've lost my message. I've lost my number. Ah, text. You'd think I'd know it at this stage, wouldn't you? Text or WhatsApp. Oh eight three three ninety six ninety six ninety six. Right, staff at a special school in Cork have been praised for their quick thinking that saved the life of one of their students. 15-year-old Conal McAuliffe collapsed and became unresponsive after suffering a cardiac arrest at St. Paul's Special School in Montanotti. Ger O'D is the Community Engagement Manager for the National Ambulance Service. Ger, good morning. Good morning, Fiona. How, How are, are you? you? Good, good, good. good. Uh, bring us back to the day that this happened. It was March 16th, wasn't it? It was, Fiona. Um, and look, the, the staff at St. Paul's, you know, they're, they're absolutely amazing people up there. Um, I, I, my own personal uh, connection with my own daughter as well. Um, and, and they're all about, you know, inclusion and, and trying to do the best for, for all of their students all of the time. It's more of a family, really, than, than a kind of a school relationship that we'd all know. Um, and on the 16th of March, because of Patrick's Day being cancelled uh, and all of that, you know, in terms of parades, they said they would have their own parade in the schoolyard um, mm. for the students. Um, and while that was going on, um, Connell, um, who was being described by his mother as, as, as a walking miracle now, um, you know, and, and she tells me that he lives for the movement all the time. He never complains. Um, and, and basically what happened was, as part of the Patrick's Day Parade, um, he was in his wheelchair. He can walk with assistance. And when he stepped out of his wheelchair, he fell onto the ground. Okay. Um, so at that point, uh, the staff noticed that he was, he was unresponsive. And they dialed uh, 99112 for the ambulance service. Um, but while while the call was was starting to to begin, uh, they noticed that Connell had stopped breathing as well. Now, in fairness to the staff that were with him at the time, 
Uh, they were so quick, straight onto his chest and started doing CPR. Um, they ran for the school defibrillator um, and had that on him within, within a minute or so and had delivered a shock uh, to Connell, uh, which returned his heart to a, a normal rhythm, as we would say, um, and he started to breathe again on his own. And how is he um, now, Jar? So, thankfully, um, Connell came home from Crumlin um, on Monday evening um, and is doing very well. He's a little bit tired and probably has mm. a little bit of a road to go to recovery. Um, but uh, he's described as, as being smiling and, and in great form. And thankfully, he's completely, um, he's exactly the way he was prior to his collapse. So he made a complete recovery in terms of his, um, with, uh, his cognitive um, functions and everything else. Ah, so, brilliant. So it's, it's just, uh, as we would say, a gold story. Um, <laughs> and, and like, I suppose it just people don't realise that, you know, how many cardiac arrests really happen. And I suppose it's like us all. It's easy for me to say it's my job, but unless it kind of hits home yourself, you really don't uh, tend to realise what goes on out there, you know. Um, and you said in your tweet that it takes a system to save a life. What did you mean by that? And how did the staff and the students react? Because it was obviously a very frightening experience for them to witness that. Yeah, and, and I suppose, Sean, just to give you, I suppose, a, a picture of what happened. So there, there are over, roughly over 2,500 of these cardiac arrests happen in Ireland in every year. Um and like that's that's a lot of people. Now, if I was to ask you a question, um, how many people would you think out of two and a half thousand go home to their families like Connell did? I don't know. I haven't a clue, actually. Is it? I'm hoping it's a high number. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all would. So, mm. but it's actually only 190, which accounts wow. to 7.4%. Um, and that's a very, very small number. Now, in terms of a system to save a life... Mm. I suppose we all think of systems as being computers and, uh, and all of that. While that's a part of it, and the ambulance service has, you know, state-of-the-art um, command and control systems and, you know, the most up-to-date um, equipment, vehicles, training, highly qualified and skilled staff. But unless somebody is doing CPR when we get there, sometimes the outcome is a lot worse. Um, we Like, we need that when someone collapses, like in Connell's case, and they're absolute heroes in St. Paul's, that they recognise that straight away. Mm-hmm. And it's the link to the chain of survival is where the system comes from. So it's early recognition that somebody is in cardiac arrest and then early CPR and early defibrillation. And the school left into action that day and just did everything exactly as it should be. And it meant that when the ambulance service did arrive, Connell was already breathing on his own and actually making some noises. So it's an absolute amazing story. Um, I, I'm delighted that Connell's mum allowed us to share it because he is truly a walking miracle. Um, it, there's, there's no doubt about that. But again, unless the staff did what they did um, in the time that they did it, it could have been a, a very unfortunate outcome. Well, I'm delighted that the outcome for Connell was such a positive one. Jerry, listen, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us this morning. Um, we're going now to uh, Ismay. You heard me mention when I was talking to Donica O'Leary about Ismay. Um, it's the Irish uh, Association and they're, they're saying that the government should hold firm on attempts to jump the vaccine queue. And I'm joined now by the Chief Executive of Ismay, Neil MacDonald. Neil, good morning. 
Good morning to you. So Neil, you believe that the government should stick with its new plan then? Yeah, we don't really see that there's uh, that there's another course open to them given uh, the NIAC advice on um, on the vaccine rollout now. And fundamentally, we don't consider this to be an industrial relations issue. It's a public health issue. And really, it's, it's not the sort of thing that should be getting debated at trade union conferences. Um, you said that um, if it was opened up, it would be a free-for-all. What did you mean by that? Well, what we mean by that is, and, and we empathise with the trade unions because we've had exactly the same issue among certain sectoral groups within ISMI ourselves, where we have been asked uh, to publicly seek prioritisation for certain groups. And obviously we have a lot of people working in a lot of different sectors, many of whom are exposed to physical contact with other, with other people, and they have an equally good and valid case to make uh, for early vaccination. But we refused uh, to um, echo those calls publicly simply because um, once you start that, then every grouping, uh, every interest group um, in those sectors simply joins an ever longer queue. And then we, we just lose any semblance of an orderly rollout of the vaccine. Do you think um, that teachers would support a strike? Do you think it's something that they want? I, I really can't say, and, and I wouldn't want to say, I, I certainly don't get a, a sense on social media that there would be mm-hmm. any, um, that, that there would be any desire um, to, to uh, for industrial action over an issue like this. But again, it, it's, it's not even, we're not even contemplating that. We're just suggesting, you know, that this is the sort of thing that shouldn't be discussed as an industrial relations issue. This is about public health and the welfare of the citizenry. It's it's not about individual groups that get vaccinated first. And we understand that the NIAC advice is purely based on risk cohorts and, and age is the most significant risk factor with COVID-19. I think a lot of people are very supportive of people who work in the retail sector in particular and uh, cleaners, people who work in warehousing, distribution, food and medicines. And there's a lot of people texting us to say, you know, that they've been doing a a huge amount of work, a a tremendous amount of work over the last year. Um, And obviously you'd like to see a lot of them vaccinated as well. But I suppose at this stage, it's just, you know, hold firm. And if, you know, if if the science says that it has to be by age, then that's what we have to do. Exactly. I mean, you know, there are so many uh, sectors like that, and including ones that we represent, other ones like nursing homes and, and childcare facilities. They've been open all the way through. Of course, nursing home staff were vaccinated, but that was much more about protection of the residents than it was protection of the staff. Uh, so it, it really is important that while while all these other groups have been working away for the last year and year and a month or, or year and two weeks in lockdown uh, with no sight of vaccines, it is important now that people accept what. Yes, it's a it's a blunt message from NIAC uh, that this thing is going to this rollout is going to happen on an age related basis, but at least it's objectively fair and everyone can identify you know, roughly when they're going to get vaccinated by reference to their age. Great stuff. Neil MacDonald, Chief Executive of Ismail, many thanks for joining us on the Opinion Line on Cork's 96 FM. This is Cork's Gold Imro Award winning
Opinion Talk Show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Quartz 96 FM. Fiona Corcoran here on the Opinion Line on Corks 96 FM and thank you for your calls and comments so far on this Wednesday morning. Now, next, Ireland will administer its one millionth vaccine later today. It'll be a huge milestone after what's been a bumpy vaccine rollout, to say the least. Are you or a family member waiting for news of your COVID vaccine appointment? Are you feeling anxious about when you might get it? One Cork GP says many of his patients are becoming increasingly anxious as they wait for what many feel is, quote, gateway to them getting their lives back and that quote is from Blackpool GP Dr John Sheehan. Good morning Dr John Sheehan. Morning Fiona. How are you? Thank you for joining us. Um, What are patients saying to you about the wait that they have to get their vaccine appointment? Yeah Fiona we we are seeing sort of increasing anxiety and I suppose there's a good news element to this as you said that there's you know over hopefully today a million dose of the vaccine will be administered and you can see in, you know, it ratcheting up. And certainly April, I think you're going to see a big change in terms of um, supply and delivery. You see City Hall, you see Parky Keefe um, opening up. Mallow is due to open up in a couple of weeks. Um, the availability of different types of vaccines is increasing. And in our own practice, we're seeing we gave 90 vaccines of the Pfizer vaccine to our older patients on Friday. And our next delivery is going to be 240 vaccines. So the number that's going up, that's available, is increasing. And that's fabulous. But then what's happening is patients are beginning to hear of other people getting the vaccine, their neighbours, their friends, their family members. And they're starting to say, gosh, I hope I don't miss out. I hope I don't miss my my, my turn. Mm -hmm. And there's a slight sort of variation among practices. Some people get it in the early part of the week. Some people get it later on. And there's a two-week sort of cycle where we get it. So you might hear of your neighbour getting it a week before you and then suddenly you're worried that you're not going to get it. So, for instance, yesterday we had a load of phone calls from patients inquiring because they hear about it becoming more available. Um, And it's just to say, I suppose, you know, like every practice, we're working through lists. We're doing it on an um, age-based sort of uh, process for the Pfizer vaccine. We will get to people. But, you know, stay in touch with people and don't panic. You know, you will see a big increase in numbers this month, you know, of people getting the vaccine. And that's really a good news story. So if people are anxious, should they just sit tight and wait for GPs to contact them? Or should they be contacting in case they have been missed somewhere along the line? Generally, I'd advise people to sit tight because um, the capacity to deal with all of these calls is quite, um, you know, can be quite a challenge. Um, I spent the weekend setting up a, an online texting system for a booking system for our patients for our next lot because we have 240 uh, patients coming. So we'd advise people to sit tight and that we will get to you. But if you do feel and if you are, you know, really worried about it, you know, do ring. We'd ask people, mm-hmm. we, you know, and we can tell people when it's likely they're going to be vaccinated. We know in our next trunks of patients, we're going to be giving our second dose to our over 80s and we're going to be vaccinating um, just slightly over 70 to sort of uh, beyond 75. There, there are two target areas. We know City Hall is due to probably start vaccinating the 65 to 70-year-olds in about two weeks' time. And they're currently working through patients who are identified by the hospitals 
um, you know, people with chronic lung issues um, and, and, and oncology patients and things like that. And what you're going to find as well, and this happens because this is the biggest vaccination program in the history of the state, you're going to find suddenly overlapping. For instance, I had a patient yesterday who is 73. We were hoping to vaccinate him um, Friday week. But he got a call from the hospital because he attends there as well and he's going to be vaccinated in Parky Keith. So there will be a bit of that overlap and just to bear with us, we will get to people. The other big fear I think people have is, gosh, if I miss it now, am I going to get it? Um, is, is that it? For instance, in our own practice and in every other practice, we get our vaccines in a two-week cycle. So if for some reason someone is sick or unwell or can't get the vaccine in this cycle and they were due to get it, We'll pick them up again in, in two weeks' time, you know, so not to worry. Um, you know, this will be going on for the next number of months and we will get to people and not to worry about it because there is, a, there is a, quite a significant level of anxiety about it. Brilliant. Um, thank you for explaining all that to us, uh, uh, Dr. John Sheehan from Blackpool. Um, now, while I was talking to Dr. John Sheehan, a listener did contact the show to say, I have two conditions, lupus and asthma, but no one seems to know if I am classed as vulnerable or not. I am one of the people Dr. Sheehan is talking about. I am worried because both my clinics and GP don't know definitively if I am, in quote, uh, vulnerable. I am worried I will miss out and fall between the cracks. Now, Fergus did contact Dr Sheehan and he told him that you won't miss out there are two categories very high risk and high risk the authorities have not defined high risk yet but I would suspect she would fall into the high risk group that would be finalised hopefully in the next week with AstraZeneca injections being given to them in five weeks time hopefully that answered your question now if anybody else has any questions or comments the numbers are you can call our 1850 you can text or whatsapp 0833 969696 and the email is opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan on Courts 96fm. Welcome back. Fiona Corcoran in for PJ on this morning's Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. Now, I just wanted to bring you a quick update on a story that we brought you on Friday's show. You might remember Ryan Murphy, who suffered a very serious brain injury, and he's currently recovering at the National Rehabilitation um, Hospital, and his family set up a GoFundMe page to try and help bring him home, because they need to get a lot of equipment for um, him to be able to come home. And they've so far managed to raise €52,000 on that GoFundMe me page which is absolutely incredible um, right more comments coming in on the teacher vaccine route this seems to have really um, you know, got to people this morning Paul Lawton on Facebook says hi listening to show reference vaccine for teachers as frontline workers to keep schools open what about bus air and bus drivers who are the only public transport who operate right through this pandemic right across the whole country when other bus operators closed up shop we are disheartened by this change by government too but surely older people must be looked after first Linda says primary school teachers should get vaccines possibly as they're dealing with small kids without masks and can't really distance. Secondary school teachers on holidays in May and can distance. Pupils are wearing masks and can tell pupils to step back and have only been in school for three months in the last year. Kieran Elliott on Facebook says teachers are abusing the system if they go on strike for the vaccine. What about the people in the finance sector keeping the economy afloat? Would they not come before teachers? Sounds like teachers just want to be vaccinated before before they go on their long summer holiday. Well, I don't know about that, Kieran, but uh, thank you for your comment. And Michael says, have we official figures to show how many teachers contracted COVID? 
Right. Anybody else who has any comments on anything that we're talking about this morning, the numbers are 1850-715-996, text or WhatsApp 0833-969696 and the email is opinion at 96fm.ie. Now, if you're a parent, there are many things that can creep into your mind and cause you to worry about your kids. One of those things might worry you is the lack of enthusiasm your youngster might have when it comes to hobbies and sports. What do you do if they're not interested in joining sports clubs? or scouts or dance classes. Child psychologist Catherine Hallisey is here with her expert advice. Good morning, Catherine. Good morning, Fiona. Catherine, if you're a parent and you're faced with a scenario like this, what should you do? I suppose the first thing to remember is that everybody is different and the child's age is going to be your first thing to look at. So the younger the child is, the more time they need for free play. So extracurricular activities have really, really grown for the primary age, Mm. but it's actually not what they need. They need more time with free play because that's their developmental task. So I suppose the first thing is think about, is this really what they need? Or would their time be better spent in having some unorganized child-led activities? You know, so that's, you know, we all want our kids to be able to play with other kids. And obviously now they're not really able to do that. But in normal times, um, you know, kids being out playing together, playing, kicking around a ball or playing any game at all together, that is great. They don't necessarily need to be in organised sports. So I suppose think about their age, first of all, and think about what are they actually interested in. So should we wait until they maybe become a little bit older, maybe in the latter years of primary school or even into secondary school, when they can make a decision for themselves and maybe go to football because their friends are going or because it's something that they're interested in, instead of us dragging them up to the to the football field every Saturday morning when they don't want to go? I think it's it's great to give kids a taste of these things. Mm. You know, so that movement is just so important and none of us are getting enough movement. So if heading to soccer or GA on a Saturday morning gets them moving and if it's not absolute torture for everyone to get them there, go ahead with it and it'll be lots of fun. And what's great is that so many coaches are really, really embracing this fun side of sports rather than the serious side of sports. So if you have a coach who's really fun and loads of games and loads of social interaction, that's great. And even if you have to strongly encourage them to go that's okay too um, but you don't want it to be that you're forcing them to go and that you're almost I suppose living through them What if some kids are saying to you on a Saturday morning oh no mum I don't want to go do you know um, and you bring them and should you like should you bring them um, are they just kind of winding you up because they just want to sit around watching TV or you know you know are are we affecting them by by bringing them even if they don't want to go like do you know as a parent what should we what should we do in that situation and what's the right thing to do or is there a right thing to do I think that's a really really common issue in most houses Mm. so I think the first thing is if you sign up for something you've got to see out the season so it's supporting kids to stick with it you know that stick with itness that we know is really really important for development the second thing is look it's normal to want to laze around watching TV you know especially after it's been a busy week so I don't think the alternative is um, you know if you don't go to your sports you watch TV if you don't go to your sports you must go out and move your body in another way so that you're comparing like with like because the draw for screens is just 
so strong for all of us that we need to be really, really careful about that one. So for my own kids, um, they, they have to go to their sports on a Saturday. Mm. Uh, you know, if they've signed up for something, they've got to see it through because I just say, look, your team is depending on you. Yeah. And if, if if everybody says, oh, they want to stay home, then what about the people who are left up there? So what you're doing there is you're focusing on this group dynamic versus you as an individual. So think about what it is that you want your children to experience. So like for me, I want them to experience being part of a team, being part of a collective versus just me as an in- individual. So I don't care if they're the star of the show in mm. the games, it's that they're part of the team. If they're the star, fantastic, that's great for <laughs> yeah. them. But actually what I really want is for them to develop this uh, team, I suppose, uh, values that we're all part of it together. And it's more fun when everybody turns up. And, you know, if you say you're going to do something, you've got to follow through. And then the only reasons you wouldn't is that, say, some something big happens or you're sick or there's some other big competing demand. And that competing demand cannot be screened. Are they learning all of these skills in school anyway? So, you know, if they didn't go to any of the extracurricular activities um, or the, the soccer on a Saturday morning, um, is that going to affect their social skills or are they learning enough in school? Well, I suppose we can't be putting everything on schools. Mm. You know, schools have so many tasks and so many goals that they must work with our children on that, um, you know, play can't necessarily be part of it. And if you think about, you know, most of our schools aren't fit for purpose. There isn't enough room to run around. Mm. The surfaces aren't safe for the kind of play that children need to do, the way they need to move their bodies. They need to be be able to move their bodies quickly without risk of bumping into someone and sending them flying into a wall. Um, So, no, they can't get all of this in school. They definitely can't. And it's this um, more kind of free aspect to the play that that's what they get outside of school. But, you know, you don't, if your child isn't into team sports, don't worry about that. Just see mm-hmm. if there's some other way they can be around children. So, like, I'm a huge fan of martial arts. Right. There are loads of ways you can do this. And, like, martial arts, you are in a group, but you're still working on yourself. And I suppose there are a lot of like dance classes and art classes that would cover that as well. Um, And is there an acceptable number of things um, that you should have your child in? Because I know I've spoken to parents over the last year who've said that life has been a lot calmer with everything cancelled because, you know, they're not going to football on a Monday, GA on a Tuesday, swimming on a Wednesday, uh, dance on a Thursday. Do you know, um, is there, you know, should we be aiming for maybe send them to two classes a week or, or what? Well, think about yourself. How many classes do you want to attend yourself? (laughs) None. (laughs) Exactly. Because we're doing other stuff. Mm -hmm. So really tuning into that. I think as parents, we, you know, we want to give our kids everything we can. Yeah. And we think, oh, if I don't give them this opportunity, they're going to miss out. But you've got to think about what's the real developmental task for children. And that's actually to play like play really is the work of children. Mm. And and they're they're spending so much time in cars. It's not just the time in the sport; it's the time travelling to and from the activity. It's all taking away from play. So just see, okay, what suits us as a family? And so many families have said that to me: that life is so much better because they're not crazy <laughs> around in the car. So think about what are the goals you want. So like, I am a big fan of every child being able to swim because it could save your life. Yeah. 
I I like them to be doing something with other children, whether that's martial arts, dance, music, you know, because you can do music in groups as well. Mm. And so it's and I, you know, I really want them to be moving their bodies. So I have this kind of hierarchy of, you know, and I do this work with families as well. I look at the family schedule to help them identify where are the spaces that they can increase play. Where are the spaces that they can increase downtime, family time, connection time? Because when you're at work all day, the last thing you want to do is be traipsing around, bringing your kids to mm-hmm. all of these different activities. So I, I guess look like everything. It's balanced, really, isn't it? Yeah, I suppose it's just about looking at your old child, their personality, as you say, what you are doing as a family and trying to like reduce stress, I suppose, as well, isn't it? Yeah, and there were so many things that you can do, you know, like creating a culture of celebrating wins in your home, big or small. And these aren't necessarily about sporting wins. This is about, you know, your child might set a goal. So one, I think one of our tasks as parents is to help them find their passion and then help them set manageable goals to improve. So their passion could be chess. Their passion could be art, it could be music, it could be anything. So if your child decides, I want to be an amazing artist, and you're like, great, super goal, let's figure out what are the steps along the way now. And then each, you know, your child might say, okay, I want to master drawing eyes. Hmm. And they say, okay, how are we going to do that? And you're working on this problem-solving, setting goals, and this is how children will develop that passion, how they'll develop self-determination, motivation. And our goal is to help our children get into that flow state. And when you work on the just right challenge, that helps that motivation and engagement. And so the child who has to be dragged to the activity, Mm. you know that it's not the just right challenge. There's something about this. So maybe you could talk to the coach, say, look, is there a skill that we can practice at home? Right. And again, so that the goal, the goal that they might be working on in the team might be just out of reach. So if you think rather than what's the activity, think about what are the goals that I would like uh, like to work on? What are the internal character strengths I want my child to develop while also having a bit of balance in the home? So, yeah, so just bigging up the thing that they're interested in with the super goal, it gives them a real focus in that situation then rather than just being dragged to somewhere. It's something that they're actually really interested in. Exactly. You know, and that it's not about your goals. You know, you might have been amazing at hockey. Yeah. And you might love for your child to have that because maybe it was your unbelievable passion. And look, I see this a lot. And a parent is like, I want my child to have that. So they sign them up for hockey and they buy all the Mm. gear and the child hates it. They're allergic (laughs) to it. And it it can, uh, you know, because they can feel the push and they can feel the pressure. So the child might have actually naturally liked hockey, but because of the parent's agenda, they resist it. And, uh, you know, think of physics, you know, force creates resistance. (laughs) Do you think a lot of dads are, um, well, I won't say guilty, but do you think a lot of dads who maybe were really good soccer players or really good GAA players and they've got these big high hopes for their kids and then their kids are just not interested in that, that they might be a little bit disappointed then? Do you know, I actually see this with both parents. Yeah. You know, we've got the stereotype of the pushy dad, but go to any match and you'll see <laughs> a lot of them highly engaged moms as well. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, with all of our parenting, look, the goal really is that we become more conscious 
of our parenting, that we become more intentional about what we're doing and that we shift ourselves out of this um, automatic, these patterns that were laid down in our own childhood so that when we're engaging with our children, we're engaging with them as humans rather than through our own past, yeah. you know, through our hopes and fears. Brilliant. Listen, Catherine, thank you very much. So I suppose we don't have to worry. Just try a different approach. Right, before we go into the break, a reminder of this. Yes, it's official. Abba's Dancing Queen is the number one song for you when it comes to dancing around the kitchen. And it's the same here at the studio. Myself and Wayne Hilton are giving the socks here. But Bear got in touch on WhatsApp and said, Florida apple bottom jeans gets every part of her body moving. Meanwhile, Maeve says anything by Pitbull or Scooter. What about you? What song gets you up and dancing around the kitchen? Text or WhatsApp 0833 96 96 96. Back after the break. This is Court's Gold Imro Award winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Quartz 96 FM. Thanks for all your calls and comments so far on this Wednesday morning. Now back to the teacher vaccine row. Lisa contacted the show this morning and Lisa is on the line now. Lisa, good morning. Good morning, Fiona. How are you? I'm very good, Lisa. Lisa, why don't you agree with teachers being prioritised? Well, I don't believe that they are a high um, priority list. Um, they should be on the list because there are a lot more vulnerable people out there that should be prioritised. I've been listening to your actual chat show this morning yeah. and about that lady who rang in earlier. I wasn't sure whether she should be a high priority risk or not. Yeah. Um, and I do think there are people who, who should be prioritised ahead of the teachers. They do a wonderful job, don't get me wrong. Our little school has been very, very supportive of the pupils. Uh, since the COVID, uh, you know, was announced. But I do believe there are people that should be high priority. Do you think, though, that like teachers who have concerns around contracting the virus and especially in primary schools where they're in very close proximity to children, do you think that those concerns are valid? Oh, definitely are valid, yes. I mean, I wouldn't take what they're saying lightly. I know, for example, in our school, they are very, very uh, particular with the cleaning, the children doing the hand washing before they come in. And in our situation, my little boy uh, contracted a disease, an uh, immune disease um, mm. called HSP 18 months ago when we first moved over to Ireland. And uh, that's where the immune system attacks the body. So we've been very cautious about t- letting him back into the school. But the, the teachers have reassured us that it's a very safe environment for the children. Mm. So, if um, so, you have a, a little boy in school. So, if industrial action was taken by the teachers, would you be worried about the impact that that would have on your child? Yes, definitely. I mean, we've been doing homeschooling here and the teachers have been very supportive in sending, you know, homework through. We've been um, listening to online um, lessons, you know, particularly with the Irish lessons. Myself and my husband don't speak Irish, so that's been very uh, good for us. And we've had regular contact with the teachers whilst homeschooling. But I do have a concern that I'm in a fortunate position. I'm a full-time mum, but there are parents out there who don't have that, uh, you know, aren't in that position. They're working full-time perhaps having to go back into the office now and if they've got that pressure on having to homeschool again because of the industrial action I don't feel that's very fair to be honest with you. Do you think all essential workers should be prioritised? We've had text messages in there about postmen and about bus drivers and about retail workers do you think that they should all be prioritised? 
Yes, I do feel they should be prioritised, especially the Gardaí. They're out, uh, you know, day to day doing the roadblocks, going into people's houses when there's been house parties and they should be prioritised. Our particular postman has worked throughout and he actually does a very good service. He delivers actual parcels into our house in our, our hallway and he's worked throughout the pandemic and it's people like that that should be prioritised, I feel, where they are coming into contact and as well as that bus drivers as well, you know, who are meeting members of the public and, and taxi drivers that kind of thing and of course the retail we've heard a lot about uh, retail staff you know where they've had to open and carry on regardless they should be should be prioritized really and any idea when you'll be vaccinated yourself uh, no, they said to me I might be able to be vaccinated first dose um, before um, my baby's born in October. I'm actually today 13 weeks pregnant. Oh, congratulations. I'm, thank you. <laughs> so I am, they have actually classed me as a, a higher risk, not on the HSC website, but the doctor did say because I am actually having a, a baby that we've uh, conceived through IVF. Oh, wow, and okay. So we've managed to throughout the pandemic fortunately been able to have some treatment and um, I've not considered a risk if you look at the HSC website despite being pregnant and it mm. is a concern because obviously there has been this data coming out about the effects if you get COVID when you're pregnant on the baby in the womb and so the doctor has encouraged me because I had concerns about having the vaccination mm. because I didn't know what effect it might have on the unborn baby but they've encouraged me to have the vaccination but I know that I may get my first dose possibly possibly before the baby's born. Okay. Then they may have to delay it because the baby then would be born for the second dose. That's what I've been told. But obviously, you know, there are people higher priority than myself and I just have been told that I just need to wait like everybody else in the normal population for my vaccination. And are you worried about that weight? I am a little concerned because obviously I do, you know, hand, regular hand washing, sanitising, wearing the mask. And I've been reluct a little reluctant to go into sort of crowded areas or shopping. My husband's been doing a lot of that just because we're trying to be a little bit more cautious, I suppose. But there will be obviously other pregnant women out there who have to go out with their children, perhaps shopping, you know, to food shopping, for example. So it is a little bit of a concern. I would feel more reassurance if I knew that I could have the vaccination, but I don't expect myself to be prioritised above the, you know, the more vulnerable mm. members of society. You mentioned another smallie. Is it just the one you have? It's the one, yes. He's going to be actually my uh, little boy, Raylan. He's going to be seven on the 22nd of April, so he's oh. terribly excited. Another lockdown birthday, I'm afraid. But <laughs> <laughs> we're kind of getting used to that now, aren't we? <laughs> we are, yes. I think we're all having a, you know, we've all had a birthday lockdown. Um, mm. So, yes. So he's, um, he's, you know, very excited about the new baby and and, uh, and he loves being back at school as well. It's, mm. He's done a lot for his mental health, actually seeing his his friends again, because, he, ha you know, being an only child, he hasn't had brothers and sisters to play with throughout the lockdown. He hasn't seen other children. So it has really helped his mental health being back in that classroom environment. And I feel if they do do industrial action again, you know, it's the small ones and, and obviously mm. the older children that are going to suffer because, again, I'll have to explain to him why he can't go back to school again and see his friends. Yeah, it is. It's very difficult on, on children, isn't it? That whole lockdown where they weren't able to go and see friends or they weren't able to play with friends. And there's only so much you can do at home with them. And they end up watching an awful lot of TV then just to kind of keep them entertained. Yeah. Yes, that's right, definitely, Fiona. I mean, as well, we haven't had the best of weather. <laughs> yeah. sort of storms and the rain. So it's not as though you could say, right, well, we'll all go out for a walk when it's 
you know, pouring down with rain mm. and wind and everything else. So it, it is difficult, you know. He's been very, very understanding, to be honest with you, for, you know, wise beyond his years of, you know, coming up for seven. But, you know, he's really understood that why he understands the whole mm. virus. We've been very open and honest about the risks and how to protect yourselves. And, you know, Did you see uh, any changes in his personality when we were in that lockdown and he wasn't at school? He didn't really understand why he couldn't go back. You know, mm. he was, you know, we would sort of, we'd do, as part of our walk, he can walk to the school and it was all closed up and he used to sort of sit on the school wall and say, well, why, why can't we go in? And I said, well, there's no teachers and, you know, it's all closed because of mm. COVID. And he found it very difficult and he does get a little frustrated sometimes because he, he can't understand, he couldn't understand why, you know, it wasn't open, why he couldn't see his friends and, and why he can't go around to see his cousins and because they're similar ages to him and I've, we've had to explain you know it's just not possible at the moment to to be able to do that so he's been very very good and and to all credit to him he's he's kept up with his schoolwork and actually advanced in his reading as well you know his stages of reading whilst being at home so you know he's he's been very very good in that regard isn't it difficult though as as a parent to see that in your child and to answer those kind of questions Yes, definitely. It is difficult because, I mean, when, when we first tried to explain to him about the, the virus, you know, he was sort of terrified and, you know, we, we explained to him because he had had that um, immune disease, we had just had to be a little bit more cautious. So, mm-hmm. And, you know, he, he did struggle to sort of understand and, you know, fortunately he's quite level-headed because obviously some children have been terrified through this mm. whole experience and you know he, he, we try not to watch to you know w- watch the news and things because obviously if you're getting a lot of statistics all the time about how many people have got it how many people have died you know he picks up on that and that can have quite an effect on him mm. you know we'll worry about it so I think it can have a huge effect on an adult let alone a child you yeah. know it's just at it this can. stage now it's been a year into over a year and we're getting all of these statistics all the time. It's it's very hard to, to take, I think, for people. It is, it is. And I do think, to be honest with you as well, it drives you a little crazy. With I know they, they have to do it, but mm. all these HSE adverts where you're hearing about the rollout of the vaccine is you know we're progressing to this stage and that stage and because it's so repetitive as well yeah. just hearing about it you think well okay you are progressing but you know you do think well, when is it going to be you know people that we know their turn and, and that kind of thing because mm. I have older relatives who fall within the categories and not necessarily so much high risk but they will be falling within those age categories and you know they haven't heard about when they're going to have the vaccination and, and you know, there's a lot of frustration when I speak to them on the phone because they they want to go back to a little bit of what the new normal, as we as we say now, really, mm. and it can be quite frustrating. Um, and just to sort of keep hearing the announcement, I know people have to be informed, but it's just it can frighten children a little bit. I feel indeed it can. Listen, congratulations again on the pregnancy, Thank Lisa, and Thank thanks you. for coming on the show this morning. Now, keep your comments coming in to us eighteen fifty seven one five nine nine six. Text or WhatsApp oh eight three three ninety six ninety six ninety six. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. Plushcare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Cork's Gold Imro Award-winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now. 1850-715-996. On Cork's 96FM. Welcome back. Fiona Corcoran in for PJ this morning on the Corks 96 FM opinion line. Keep your comments and uh, suggestions coming in to us. Text or WhatsApp 083 396 96 96. Now, my next guest was so badly injured in a cycling accident. Her parents were at one stage told to say their goodbyes. Deborah O'Connor, a very good morning to you and welcome to the opinion line. Good morning. How are things? Good. How are you? Well, yes, good. Thank you. Good. You're good now, but obviously um, there's been quite a, a journey that you've had to take to get to where you are now. Can you remember what happened or can you bring us back to when you had your accident? Yeah, um, so it was um, a lovely Sunday morning on the 30th of September 2018 and I was always joined the Bandon Cycling Club and I went well on the Sunday morning and unfortunately then after that I woke up maybe about four or five days later in a coma in the seaway. I don't know. There was a um a pothole on the road that morning and yeah, it was unfortunate. And you you spent five weeks in a coma. So how long were you in hospital after that then? Um I left at Christmas time, so I had the three months there. The three months. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it was hard, came and went, but um I you know, initially I was nice asleep and everything. And then I'd say after about two weeks, two or three weeks, I don't recall, but my mom and my sisters were able to say that I used to open my eyes and I'd be, you know, squeezing their hands and kind of talking to them. And eventually then come the November time, I was able to go for a little walk within the CUH and things like that. So what was the injury? Was it a brain injury or was it a spinal injury or what happened? It was a brain injury, Fiona, yeah, a brain injury. And my shoulder and my like my left arm as it is now, it's not 100% straight. Like mm. I did have to get that operated on, but my brain was the main thing. And before the accident, you said that you loved to go cycling. Like was, was fitness and activities and sport, was that all part, a big part of your life before the accident? Oh, secrets! It was. <laughs> um, I loved the cycling. I was a big cyclist, and um, I was a big tennis player. I do play my tennis, and I'm a mountain climber. I was, I'm an Everest based Gaspel Kilimanjaro person. But look, 
I get there again that we come slowly but surely. You actually climbed Mount Everest on Kilimanjaro, did you? The base camp, the base camp of Everest. Yeah, yeah, mm. I love. But you see, within with my work time, I loved my pharmacy work, and then those three times afterwards with mm. the tennis and the cycling, always good, good movement. So are you keeping those kind of things in your mind as a goal to get to in its in your recovery? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like working time will come. Um I'm it's sport wise, definitely I'm looking forward to getting back and the running, I took up the running because for the mental health, like running it clears me, it helps me. I mean, this morning I was thanks to Sandy O'Sullivan in Cove. I did my first well, 10 miles this morning and I'm after winning my medal. Oh, congratulations. So <laughs> <laughs> that's why thanks to her. But you know now, I took up, once I had left and finished within Dublin, the rehabilitation centre for the three months in January of 2019, like Though I used to have an hour a week at the gym within mm. Dublin, and they were even teaching me how to um, run, and that's what actually after really keeping me going. It's fantastic for God help when I was going to say those people within without work or injuries. This working or this running clears and helps the mind. And you are going to take part in the virtual marathon this June, or that's your plan, is it? Yes, so I had signed up last year for the Cork Marathon within the Tour de Munster. I'm, um, I'm within. I have joined and done the Tour de Munster cycle for the two years, and I had signed back up to raise the money for the Down syndrome. And that, obviously, now last year it got cancelled; it didn't go ahead. So this year, as much as that marathon isn't going virtually within Cork. We could sign up again and I do it within, when I say now I do it with a group, there is a guy from the Tour de Monster, he's going to run with me and we do the marathon. And I'm going to raise the money. I'm very good friends with Liam Hearn from Balancholic, the Down Syndrome Centre. And he, you know, I'll get the money raising and get back into that. You sound like a very positive person, but have there been moments over the last year that you just felt like you couldn't carry on? And and when you were in that kind of a frame of mind, what did you think about or how did you motivate yourself to keep going? Oh, things things have been, and can be hard. But, you know, Mm. my friends, my family, they, they all obviously would know who they are now. They've been helping me, encouraging me. My special friends, and I have one special friend, and she helps me weekly and daily. And it just, it can be hard. It can mm. be hard, but it's amazing. Within those two and a half years, I have, my mind is improving so much now. The motivation to get back to work, things like that is helping me. It's helping me. You mentioned you're a pharmacist. Um, have you been back to work at any stage? No, no, I just kind of popped into the shop. Um, my father was a great owner of the O'Connor Pharmacy in Dulcet right. and um, I, I had popped into them. But look, in time to come, in time to come, that mm. will come back to me. And I love it. I love the pharmacy. I love it. I'd say you miss all the customers and the staff. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> I end up talking to them too much now. I'd be mad knowing how they're doing, I think. <laughs> and what about your recovery? Um, like, at what stage are you now? Do you still need to get more procedures or are you fully recovered? Um, no, Matt, like, 
the, 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 the mind I, or uh, there's a brain injury just get mm. that motivated um, but no other than that I don't have anything else to do really it's just to get the brain and the motivation and the, it's the time it's for me now it's the time to push me and get me back to work and when you say the mind, like, are there exercises that you could do to help your mind? I mean, I know physically we have we have so many different, ex- you know, exercises that we can do and we have physiotherapy. But what about the mind? How do you train the mind to get back to where it was? Um, I just do a lot of the breathing and I don't have, um, like, I had the acquired brain injury within Ireland. They were helping me initially at the beginning. But that's all improving now. So I don't, but I... I just do a lot of breathing and taking my time. Fantastic. And what about the bike? Have you been back on the bike or will you get on it again? No. <laughs> I, I, I certainly not going to sell it. I'm going to keep it, but we'll see. You never know. You can hang it on the wall as an ornament. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll see how it goes. And would you be afraid of getting back on it? At the moment, it won't it won't push me to get back on it as mm. much as I loved my cycling and it was a big thing in my life but now when I'm driving in my car if I go somewhere and I see cyclists on the road I sometimes be driving going oh my god there's a pothole coming oh my god do they know that <laughs> the other one <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Debbie you were talking there about the Cork City Marathon and that you're raising um, money um, for the for the what, what was it again it was in Balancholic the the, the, yeah, the Down syndrome, yeah. Down syndrome and yeah. Yeah. So if, pe- if people want to support that, how can they? How can they support it? Yeah, well, I've, um, I'm going to get my I donate set back up. Now, Liam O'Hearn may help me within Ballincolleg or um, a friend of mine, he'll help me get that up. And, you know, now it's just to get all this people back with those kids and children. I want them all back to school and the training. And, yeah, it's just to get the, the watch up and running for the I don't need. Well, once it's set up, let us know and we'll be able to share it then on our social oh. media. And I think you've inspired me now to get up off my ass and try and do a bit of running and (laughs) do something in the marathon. I know. Sure, look, you know, it keeps me going. It's a a great thing for me, you know, that three or four days a week just to Mm. get out running and it'll motivate me and all that. And you just go running by yourself and is it just around, like wherever you live, just around your 5k there? Yeah, I I run within yes, Bancolic and I joined a very good talker running club. I, they're fantastic, and I have great new running buddies, and I run with them. So please, God, I'll come this by Monday. I might yeah. meet them in Black Rock or. Fantastic. Brilliant. Listen, Debbie, thanks so much and best of luck with everything and best of luck with the fundraiser. Thanks so much for joining us on the show this morning. If you want to get in touch with us, uh, you can t- call us 1850 715 996, text or WhatsApp 0833 96 96 96. And the email is opinion at 96fm.ie. James Bay, let it go. Definitely not uh, one for dancing around the kitchen, unless you want to do a slow set. Do they still have slow sets anymore? I don't know, but for yourself and your partner to be dancing around the kitchen, um, that's one there for you, James Bay, let it go. Now, uh, next this morning, I want to catch up with Sally Crowley. Sally's daughter, Jessica, is a resident of Farnley Community Nursing Home. Sally, P just spoke with you a few months ago and it was a real struggle, wasn't it, for you and Jessica in terms of visits and spending time together, but it's all changed now, hasn't it? Good morning. Good morning, how are you? <laughs> um, no, it's, it's um, great. Uh, Jessica got her second vaccine in February. 
Lovely. And uh, we were fighting hard, you know, along with other res- uh, families of their residents to try and get access to, to see them, you know. And um, even though they were after getting their second vaccine, they still weren't getting any visits. And we were saying, what's the point of people getting a vaccine if they can't get mm. a visit, you know? So one reporter put it to Netflix at one of the meetings and they said that they would um, consider it and, you know, try and make a plan. So um, eventually, on the 11th of March, it was confirmed that the visits would be start again on the 22nd of March. So I can't even explain how much it meant to us, you know, knowing that we were going to be inside her room again, sitting next to her, you know, just to, to be with her again. So and what was that like? Well, how did you feel when you when you got to see her like that? Oh my God, it was surreal. It was honestly, you no know, surreal, you know. And the best thing about it was, you know, um, both myself and my husband were able to go in together to see her. So mm. the two of us were allowed into the room to see her, you know. So I was kind of scared at the start. I was saying, like, you know, I didn't want to start crying as soon as I saw her or anything like that, you know. So um, they told her that we were going to come out to her and she was kind of prepared. And, you know, even though you're prepared, you're still kind of emotional. But I was fighting back the tears, you know, tears of joy. You know, so it was absolutely fabulous. So th- that was on the 27th of uh, March, we, our first indoor visit since Christmas. Wow. And how did Jessica react? Oh, my gosh, she was over the moon. I, she was beaming, absolutely beaming from ear to ear. It was it was unnatural, you know. It was, it was absolutely fabulous because we had window visits prior to that, you know. Yeah. I know Fair Juice Swim, you know, Jessica was on the ground floor, so she, she's non-verbal, so... They would open the door so we could kind of uh, communicate kind of face-to-face at a distance with her. But it wasn't the same and she couldn't understand why we weren't coming in, you know. And sometimes there she wasn't, she, you know, she was feeling under the weather and you're, you're so close and you're so far away, you know. You can't even sit by her to comfort her, you know. So, and as a mother looking at your child like that, it, it's very, very hard, you know. Sally, so, remind us about Jessica's condition. Yeah, she is a rare form of uh, Parkinson's disease. Would it, uh, it's, it's a very rare form, you know, mm. so it, it would remind you of motor neuron disease. Right. Both with all the complications as well, you know, so she has to have 24-hour care and she's um, peg-fed and, you know, all the rest of it, you know. But she's non-verbal and she can't um, use her hands or communicate in any way. Like even with motor neuron disease, you know, they can use their eyes. Mm. To communicate with a, like a, a screen, but we just get it affects our eyes as well. So um, you'd have to have kind of face to face interaction and really and truly know her well to know if she was in pain yeah. or if she needed something, you know. So, um, but it was absolutely brilliant to get into see her, you know. It, it was fantastic. And you posted a lovely picture on Facebook this weekend where you and Jessica were out for the first time together in the sunshine yeah, and you both look yeah. like you're having a lovely time. Oh, what was that God. like? It was actually brilliant because we weren't expecting it. Yeah. It was, um, we went over for our visit so this time it was myself and my daughter um, that would be Jessica's um, other sister of only two girls and there's only uh, 12, 13 months between them, you know, so they're very close. And uh, we went in and it was a fabulous atmosphere inside there, you know. It was um, Easter Saturday and um, um, 
a couple of the the workers they they're in charge of the entertainment you know mm. they had um, some easter eggs and non-alcohol beer for the other residents you oh, know honestly. and the sun was just beaming down on the yard and there was other family members in the garden you know um, with their um, uh, family members yeah. so uh we were saying, could we go for a walk with her? And we were surprised. We said, yeah, yeah. Once you're, once you know, they took our temperatures, took uh, put on our masks, and took all the necessary precautions. You know, mm. so we were able to go for uh, the fresh air with her. And you know, we started singing to her, and she was getting up, and she was <laughs> really in our glory. You know, oh, so I it was it. it was absolutely fantastic. You Brilliant. Know, well, I, listen, I, I here's to explain in words how it felt. Yeah, well, listen, many yeah. more moments like that ahead now for yourself and Jessica and your family. I know, I know. And, you know, I, I, I you know, I, my heart generally goes out to people that are still fighting to see their mm. their uh, families, you know. There's other care homes and they're not abiding to the, the guidelines, even though their the residents have been vaccine, or vaccinated, you know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, my heart goes out to them this morning that can't experience that for themselves, you know. I know, it's awful. Listen, Sally, thank you so much for coming on and best of luck to Jessica. Much more to come in the final hour of Wednesday's Opinion Line. You're listening to Cork's 96FM. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan on Cork's 96FM. Welcome back to Wednesday's Opinion Line. Fiona Corcoran in for PJ Coogan. Today, now with the sun shining and the promise of spring and summer ahead, the wedding season would in normal times be kicking in for many couples and indeed businesses. But ongoing COVID restrictions around weddings is continuing to bring challenges for the sector. Tara Fay is one of Ireland's leading wedding planners and she joins me to discuss this further. Tara, good morning to you. Good morning, Fiona. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Listen, Tara, it's obviously... Um, a time, it's a difficult time for, for people, especially when they would be organising their weddings um, you know, what are people saying to you? Yes, it's extremely challenging and you know we, we don't forget about the, the sort of challenges that everybody else is going through because everybody mm. is having you know difficult challenges at the moment but I suppose from a wedding point of view, I mean if we think even about the people last year who postponed for this year in the hope that they could have what they would have imagined would have been their dream day um, and now they're looking at possibly having to postpone a second and third time and then we have all of the people who just got engaged recently who want to try and plan their wedding and they're finding it increasingly difficult because none of us actually know when weddings um, above six people are going to be allowed again at what point are restrictions going to be eased and I suppose the most difficult point is that because um, weddings were not even mentioned in the last press release um, or the press conference that the government gave, it's very difficult for couples even to know about planning for this summer, whether they should postpone, what are they postponing for and when would they postpone to. And I suppose a lot of couples have already had to uh, reschedule weddings and I've spoken to some couples who were really stressed out the first lockdown then they put it off until October, November then they put it off to, to March or April and now it's just kind of hanging in the balance and they don't really know what to do. Yeah, and I suppose one of the difficult things then for them is that they've just lost all joy. Um, I know that a lot of um, questions that I've been getting sent in messages or DMs or in emails is that I've just had it now that I'm just... I've, 
I don't know what to do. Should I postpone again? Should I go ahead? I keep losing deposits that they've postponed for three, four, sometimes up to five times they've rescheduled dates. And you have to remember that each time a couple tries to reschedule, it is not just a case of them ringing a venue and going, have you got a different date? They have to then try and move every single supplier that they've already booked. So, and some of them, you know, would have, you know, booked this supplier maybe a year or two years ahead of time. And then that supplier, then they're, they're trying to, so they're playing, I would say they're trying to play a giant game of Jenga every single time they try and reschedule a wedding. It must be very frustrating for the suppliers then as well. It is challenging for suppliers as well because, of course, you know, in in Ireland we have an incredible array of amazing suppliers. I mean, I have to say that they are world class. I mean, Ireland is listed as one of the top destinations worldwide to get married, and that is no accident. That is because of the incredible um, range of suppliers that we have in this country. Um, So they are all trying to do their best by their couples. However, each time they're they're being put in an unenviable situation because you know that the first time they've tried to re- they will reschedule the second time but each time that it's being rescheduled you know they could have like 5 10 15 different couples and they're trying to create sort of the jenga um network as well it's like mm. a spider's web trying to join up all of the dots for everybody and I mean, this may seem trivial to some people, but to other people, it is an incredibly important life event for them. And Tara, your advice to couples and suppliers is don't let it get angry or don't let it get ugly. What do you mean by that? I think that it's a supplier. Let's take it from, I can see it from both sides. Mm. So from the couple's point of view, that when it comes to the third, fourth, fifth time that they're having to to change their date, they're just at the end of their sort of string of patience and there they can't understand why a supplier who has moved for them two or three times isn't going to move for them a, 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 an additional time without maybe having extra charges or maybe that the date isn't available and they want the deposit refunded they have to understand from the supplier's point of view that the supplier has done some element of work um, and they have to be paid for that from the supplier's point of view they're getting you know frustrated with with couples as well and everybody is you know it is frustrating for everybody you know some mm-hmm. of these suppliers haven't worked in a year and a half and I get that the couples are um, are g- getting upset as well and it is incredibly challenging because the we- weddings as an industry are not even recognised we don't fall under any single government department and we're not even classed as events from the point of view of um, easing of restrictions and it's such a huge industry here in Ireland. So how damaging is this whole uncertainty around weddings to the industry? It's incredibly damaging, not just to the domestic side, but also to our international um um, weddings market as well because I know that sort of couples who would have um, booked for later in this year for internationally to move into Ireland um, and also for next year are now looking at moving their weddings out of Ireland and that's incredibly damaging because we've worked so hard to get where we are internationally and I do worry that unless we recognize weddings um, in this country and the value that weddings bring to the economy not just to hospitality but also to sort of local economies that we could lose our place internationally for weddings um, and and that it, it's been very hard fought and I would hate to see us um, to lose ground that way. I suppose like people are looking at countries like the UK where there is a clearer roadmap for weddings and they have dates in the spring and the summer um, and do you think that we need something like that to give clarity? 
I think if we had, like I know in the UK from the 21st of June, there are going to be no restrictions in place. Well, so they say that it's mm. like there's no going to be no restrictions on numbers. Look, we all understand that there are going to be restrictions going to the end of this year. But it is what are those restrictions looking like? What um, are the numbers associated with those? At what point? I mean, even if the government came out and said, if we get case numbers to this percentage, mm. these are the restrictions that are going to apply to wedding guest numbers. These are the restrictions that are going to apply to um, to music, to hair and makeup. Like at the moment, if you think about it, somebody who's, who has planned a wedding for this summer can't even buy a wedding dress. They can't go and try on a wedding dress. They don't know mm-hmm. whether the band or any of the music that they've booked is going to be allowed. They are unsure if the hair and makeup that they have booked um, is going to be allowed. And that is incredibly frustrating. And I think that, I, you know, I, I say this quite often, and I'm sure people are sick of me uh, hearing me <laughs> say this, that Weddings are, um, the wedding industry is predominantly female-led, yet the people that are making the decisions for weddings seem to be a lot of men. Um, I'm not saying that that is linked, but it it does seem to be unusual that nobody has taken time to speak with anybody in the wedding industry to understand the restrictions that they are placing on us and our ability to do our jobs. And also the other thing to bear in mind is that Weddings, it's not just a case of making bookings. There's also a legal requirement, which is a three-month notice application that has to be put in. So even if we were told that tomorrow weddings could take place, for a lot of people it's going to be too late because they would have had to make an application for their three-month notice. And the registrars around this country are doing an incredible job. They are overrun with applications and they are trying to move dates around um, appointments issue marriage licenses to people extend um, notices for um, for for marriage so it is it's you know it, it touches on so many different elements of the industry and so Tara what advice would you have for any couple or bride to be listening this morning with their head in their hands and not sure what to do I think they have to think about um, what are they holding on for so anybody that rings me I'll go at what point is it going to be unsustainable for you to go ahead with your wedding? Are you going to be happy with 25 people? Are you going to be happy with six people? What levels of restrictions are non-negotiable for you? Um, and then they just have to make that decision and plough on ahead and just and just try and enjoy. And anybody who has been married has, has had their wedding under any of the levels of restrictions. They've all been delighted they've done it and they have had the best day ever. So it is about, I suppose, making peace with your decision um, and just moving on ahead and trying to find some more joy in the in the wedding planning process because that's what it's all about. Tara Fay, thanks so much for joining us on the Opinion Line in Cork's 96 FM. Now, Tara did say it's not always the brides-to-be. We're joined now on the line by a groom-to-be, Darren Johnston. Good morning. Morning, Fiona. How are you? I'm good, I'm good. How are you? What's your experience been like with this whole, uh, the restrictions that we have and trying to plan a wedding? Well, look, before I start anyway, I just want to say congratulations on doing a great job. <laughs> You've got big shoes to fill and obviously you're filling them well. You're doing a fantastic job. Thanks very much. Um, yeah, like, I mean, look, myself and Natasha, we aren't getting married until April of next year. So fingers crossed, all going well, we should be some bit back to normal at that stage. But, you know, I mean, we've, we've had a lot of fun during lockdown planning the wedding because... Mm. There's well, there's not a lot else to do, Fiona. You know, so um, but you know, we kind of we sat down a couple of weeks ago and we had that conversation of you know if there are restrictions still in place come April of next year, if we are uh, required to confine our list to smaller numbers, you know, what are we going to do? And 
um, we kind of came to the decision together that, um, you know, that's our day and we're going to play on with it no matter if there's 6, 25, 50, 100, 150, 350, whatever, you know. And if it was normal um, times, would you be going for a bigger wedding? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, when, you know, when myself and Natasha talked about our wedding day, there is a big crowd in the room with us. There's an even bigger crowd at the afters. Um, mm. When when I think about, you know, speaking to the room as the, the, the groom on the day, um, I don't see myself speaking to six people. But, you know, uh, look, it, it's not exactly fair. The world isn't very fair at the moment. So you just kind of have to roll with the punches, you know. Um, if there are six people on the day, there are six people on the day. We're, we're getting married that day. And mm. if we, like, I suppose... We had that conversation of are we getting married because we love each other or are we getting married because we want to have a, a big hoolie, you know? Yeah, I think it's a bit of both though, isn't it? Because you want to kind of share in your joy with your family and friends and if that's six people, well, well and good. But if you have a big gathering that you want to share the day with, then, you know, that's that's the way you want to have it and that's the way you uh, want to, to be. And, and I can totally understand, um, you know, the people in that position where they, you know, absolutely need to have the big party on the day. But, uh, you know, there are um, two friends of the that live in Clare who were due to be married in um, September of last year and you know they kind of talked about pushing it out and and um, then they were told look you can you can have I think it was 10 people at the time Mm. Um, and they just said you know what let's do it let's go get married and if we want to have the big party we'll have the big party when the world comes back to normal you know Um, and I know that that expense is a little bit harder to justify as yeah we're just having a big party for 150 people but you know (laughs) it might be a bit uh, cathartic when we come back to normal you know. And has Natasha been able to go and look at a dress? Because like Tara was talking there about these kind of things for people who are getting married even in the next year that they haven't been able to go and try on a dress or the suit or whatever it is. Do you know, Natasha has been very reliant on Pinterest over the last couple of months. <laughs> oh, God. Um, yeah, so, I mean, she's kind of getting an idea as to what kind of dress she thinks she'd like before mm. the, the shops reopen, you know. Um, and I know that, you know, eventually going to shop for her wedding dress is going to be a big moment for her. Um, but, yeah, I mean, she's kind of uh, taken the same attitude of me, as me of, you know, um, it'll happen when it's meant to happen. And, um, you know, I mean, look, it, it, we, we'll figure it out. We'll, we'll tackle each problem as it comes to us, you know. Um, so, you, you know, she hasn't gotten that, that big um, day of, of going to shop for her dress and picking out her dress yet. Um, but that day is coming, you know. Do you think that the government needs to be more clear on uh, a roadmap for weddings? I think that the government needs to be clear on a roadmap for a lot of things. To be honest, if I'm honest, I don't think they've been very clear about a lot, but look, that's a different conversation. Um, I, I think, look, in the grander scheme of things, weddings are probably low down the priority list. Um, but, you know, as your previous caller said, they, they, you know, weddings are very big in Ireland. They're very important. You mentioned UK weddings as well, coming back to normal in July. Mm. To be honest with you, Fiona, that's because UK weddings are no crack. They make zero <laughs> crack. Like. Um, but, you know, I mean, uh, yeah, it would be nice for the government to have a clearer roadmap to the return to bigger gatherings. Um, but, you know, obviously there are problems to be tackled before that. And I mean, like, you know, the the thing is, we're taking the time right now while we can't go and and do things and look for things we're planning you know um, and contingency planning is a big a big thing for us like of you know if we can't get this what are we going to do um, thankfully all of our suppliers have been very great so far they've been absolutely fantastic and to be honest I, I haven't heard of any any I haven't heard of many people who have had those nightmare scenarios where you know the supplier is refusing to reschedule I mean I've, I've 
you know, I've heard of it in the news and that, you know, and, and looking online, but yeah. I, I don't know anyone who's experienced that directly, you know? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, really, like, you know, the, the suppliers are, are trying their absolute hardest to be accommodating to the most that they can. And I mean, I suppose the important thing, if, if you find yourself in a situation where you have a, a difficult supplier or a supplier who won't reschedule for you, it's just important to, to understand that, you know, they're struggling as well. Engage them in conversation, ask for their help as opposed to getting angry at them, I suppose, is the way to go, you know? Yeah, indeed. Listen, Darren, thank you very much for joining us and congratulations to yourself and Natasha. I hope you have a great day when it comes around. After the break, we'll be discussing a new documentary exploring miscarriage. Stay with us. This is Cork's Gold Imro award-winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now. 1850 715 On Cork's 96FM. Welcome back, Fiona Corcoran here on the Opinion Line this morning. Keep your comments and calls coming in to us, 1850-715-996-083-396-9696. Now, it's estimated that one in four pregnancies end in miscarriage. That's thousands of couples every year in Ireland, yet many do so in silence. A new documentary which airs tonight will hear the stories of a number of parents who went through it. Among them are Jennifer and Paddy Egovon, who run the Cork Miscarriage Support Group. They they experienced six miscarriages over the years and Jennifer joins me now. Good morning, Jennifer. Morning, Fiona. How are you? I'm very, very good. Jennifer, you're featuring in this documentary which airs on TG Car tonight. Um, what can we expect to hear from yourself and Paddy? Yeah, I suppose what we, what we spoke about primarily was um, the Cork support group that was set up in 2018 with the help of the Miscarriage Association of Ireland. Um, I suppose our own history throughout the years what we found was the lack of support locally. We'd say peer-to-peer support was like what, what I was looking for mm. and just didn't seem to exist in Cork at the time. So I suppose in 2018, I kind of said, okay, I want to get more involved here and set something up. So I got in touch with the Miscarriage Association of Ireland and they I suppose they would have been a great support to myself and Paddy throughout the years. And they, they jumped on board straight away with setting up the Cork group. And I suppose it, it, it kind of went from there, really. It must have been a very difficult experience for yourself and Paddy. Yeah, it was. I suppose we, we got married, I got married when I was quite young, I got married at 23. So I suppose you never expect anything to go wrong when you when you decide to start having a family. Mm. Um, and we started trying and we got pregnant pretty much straight away. Um, no, no issues, no problems. And we went in for our dating scan full of the joys of life in, in 2008, thinking that everything was perfect. Um, at 13 weeks and we went in and we had the scan and were told I'm so sorry there's no heartbeat and it's just it's just devastating I mean you never you, like you kind of skip past those pages in the books because you know what happens but you never think it's going to happen to you so I suppose it's just the utter devastation of it and the shock of it and just this whirlwind of emotions from utter devastation and sadness to just complete anger that this was after happening Um yeah, so it, it was it was very difficult, and I suppose you you go when you're told that it's just one of those things, and to go off again and try again whenever you feel ready, which we did, and we went trying again pretty quickly because we kind of said, okay, we've had our bad luck, we we are the one in four, and it's not going to happen again. So we went and we tried again, and we got pregnant again very easily, with no issues, and at eight weeks we were told again, I'm very sorry. It's the same story, there's no heartbeat. So I suppose at that point, then you start thinking, okay, there's there's something wrong here that that, that this keeps happening. And I even mm-hmm. remember thinking, 
that thought he should go away and find somebody else to marry that could give him a family. Yeah. Um, and obviously it, it's very hard for the man as well because they often get forgotten about. And that made me quite angry that everybody asked him how I was doing. Mm. But so few, so, so few people actually asked him how he was doing. And that, that's quite, I suppose that made me quite angry when he'd come in and I'd say, well, did such and such ask how you were? <laughs> and nobody yeah. did. So that, that's, that, that, that's quite hard as well. It is. And you set up the Cork Miscarriage Support Group. And have you had a lot of people contacting you for support? Yeah, I suppose prior to COVID, we would have had monthly support meetings in Wilton. And we would have had people at the, those meetings every month. Um, and then I suppose when COVID hit, uh, because I'm a committee member of the Miscarriage Association of Ireland as well, we went and we said, OK, but people still need the support. It, mm. it doesn't stop just because of the pandemic. If anything, they needed to know more than ever. So we looked at alternative options, and I suppose what we came up with was Zoom meetings, which we had been holding monthly as well um, on the third Tuesday of every month. But because of the demand for them, we've actually started running two meetings a month from this month because it's just the demand is so high at the minute that one meeting just wasn't enough. It wasn't giving people the time they needed. So we're actually running two meetings a month now from April via Zoom. You said, Jennifer, when you had your first miscarriage that there wasn't the support available there for you. Like, how important is it to be able to talk to other people? Because, do you know, I know you mentioned the impact that it had on Paddy and stuff, but do you need other people outside of the couple to speak to? Yeah, definitely. So especially as time goes on, because it was, in some ways it gets harder because a lot of people think you should be over it and that you mm. should have dealt with it. And I suppose that goes within the couple as well. It was the grieving process is so different for everybody. The one part of the couple might might be further along on the grieving process than the other person. And it's very hard then for the person that isn't there, yes, to speak to the other person because they feel that they're kind of dragging them back down. Mm. So it's good to be able to talk to somebody outside that is relatively almost like a stranger, really, but that understands what you're going through. So it's that peer-to-peer support of being able to talk to others that actually understand it and that know what you're going through and just, that just get it, really. That, that's so important. So how important then was it to have your story and other f- stories similar to yours feature in this documentary that's going to air tonight? Yeah, no, I think it, it, it's great that it's, that it's been spoken about so publicly and again I suppose I would be quite open with people about our losses not everybody is comfortable doing that mm. because it is still such a taboo subject and there is still a, a kind of a veil of secrecy around miscarriage and I suppose by, by Sheila doing this documentary it's just brought it to the forefront and it's highlighted it and when somebody I suppose in prominence comes out and speaks about it it just makes it a little bit more normal for people and it just start that conversation and it opens the door for people to talk about it if that's what they want to do. Why do you think there is that culture of silence around miscarriage, especially when it's something that you know, if it's estimated that one in four pregnancies end in miscarriage, it's such a common occurrence. Why do you think we're still so awkward and uncomfortable about talking about it? Yeah, I think in part it's just because because it's such an awful thing to happen. I suppose people don't don't realise the enormity of it. Mm. Um, so people that haven't been through it don't always understand that it, it's, it is the same as losing a baby. I mean, you've lost your baby and that grief is real. Mm. And people who haven't been through it don't don't always get that and don't understand that. And then you're met with comments. When you tell somebody and you're met with comments like, yeah, at least you're still young or at least you know you can get pregnant or at yeah. least 
just you know it's it's this at least attitude that, that can be difficult and I mean when you when you say when you pour your heart out to somebody and you're met with that kind of response you're more guarded than going forward telling mm. people and I think that's part of it as well is that it was all I wanted to hear from people was I'm really sorry I'm here if, if you need me or I'm here if you want to talk or if you want to vent I'm here yeah. that's enough <laughs> that's that's all I wanted to hear and that would have sufficed and that would all they wanted really. No, I think like we kind of say, oh well at least you know you weren't too far gone or you're at least this or at least that and we're trying to make people feel better about the situation and putting a positive spin on it but as you say sometimes we just need people to listen. Exactly, I mean people people say things with the best of intention and they're not saying things to be hurtful or they're not saying things to upset people Mm. but it's just that they don't know what to say and sometimes if you don't know what to say you're better off saying the least amount and just saying I'm really sorry and I'm sorry to hear that I'm here if you need me and that that really is enough just to know that somebody's there on the other end of the phone to talk to or somebody's there to listen to you sometimes that, that's all you need and I suppose to acknowledge the person's loss as well because it is a loss mm. and just to acknowledge that um, rather than kind of put the positive spin on it for the person that's going through it there's mm. nothing positive in it and I suppose that, that can be quite hard and it, it is hard for people who haven't been through it to understand but I think by starting the conversation and speaking about it, it'll go a long way to, to helping other people understand it as well. And Jennifer, how can people contact your support group? Yeah, so I suppose if you go onto the Miscarriage Association of Ireland website, we would have committee members on call for telephone support Monday to Fridays um, from 10 in the morning until 12 noon and then again from 8pm until 10pm at night. Um, so that would be one way. And then the other way would be through our Zoom meetings. So again, if anybody wanted to join those, they just email info at miscarriage.ie and we would send on the email link then on the day of the meeting. Brilliant. Jennifer, listen, thank you so much for joining us on the show this morning. And if anybody wants to watch that documentary, it's fronted by Sheila Shoiga and it airs on TG Cahar tonight at 9.30pm. This is Fiona Corcoran with you on the Cork's 96FM Opinion Line. Now, earlier we were talking about litter and the problems it causes and Councillor Ted Tynan is after phoning in. Good morning, Ted. Morning, Fiona. Uh, Ted, you wanted to make the point that in the past local authorities did have litter programmes. Exactly, Fiona. Cox City Council now is an example up to about 10, 11 years ago where the official local authority in, in the Cork area to collect waste from people's homes. And in 2010, there was a vote taken by Cox City Council to privatise that service and hand it off to a private waste company. The vote at the time was um, carried by Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, the Labour Party, and I'm not too sure, maybe one or two independents, but was roundly passed anyway by city council, public representatives. And I can remember speaking very clearly at the time. I said, we'll, we'll rule the day we've done this because I predicted what is now happening would happen and indeed it has happened, you know. And so, so do you think that this is why we're seeing a lot more litter around the city and county now? I am convinced of that, uh, Fiona. And i give you an example now about politics, you know. Last um, September, October, I tabled a motion that Cox City Council would call on central government, the current government, to um, recognise the failure of the privatisation of the waste management services and to bring them back under local authority control and practice, and meaning Cox City Council. That went to a vote, and the vote was 16-12. Now, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael voted against my motion. 
Two of the Green Party councillors, Fiona, voted against my motion and one independent. Now, if the Green Party had voted for the motion, it would have been 14-14 and it would have put the Lord Mayor in the spot in the chair to vote for or against it in the casting vote, which was also supported by one independent. And if they had voted for that motion, it could have been won by a vote of 15-13. to That would then have put pressure on central government to do something about the dumping of waste all over our country, around our countryside and in our cities. But Ted, what about personal responsibility? I mean, it's fair enough to say all of this about the local authorities, but I mean, I was was out on a walk the other day and I saw that somebody, obviously a few people had um, been drinking in a spot, put all the cans and bottles into a bag and left the bag sitting there by the roadside. Like, should those people not have just brought the bag home with them? They should have done, yeah. So is that, look, like, I, do we need to try and get out to people then to bring your rubbish home or to dump it in yeah. a bin if you come across one? I agree 100%. And on the beaches, there should be bins and in parks. There should be plenty of bins there for people to dispose of their waste and their litter. And then if they set up the um, uh, the proper waste con- uh, collection service by Cox City Council, you would encourage people then look where... And the private companies are doing it. And incidentally, Fiona, how many millionaires have been created in the last 10 or 11 years by the owners of those trucks that come up to your door and take away your bin of rubbish, you know? Mm. And we estimate there's 27 millionaires now as a result of the privatisation of our waste management services, you know? And also, Fiona, privatisation is the enemy here. Um, You can see the disaster now that privatisation of waste has created, you would have the same at the fully privatised water. Look what's happening with the health services because of the attempt to privatise the health services. And education is the same, you know. Privatisation is the enemy of progress okay. and it's not the way to go. OK, Fiona, Ted, I'm you know? sure there will be people who agree and there will be people who disagree with you, but we'll have to leave it there. Thanks for getting in touch with us. This is Cork's Gold Imro Award-winning talk show, The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now, 083-396-9696. On Cork's 96FM. Wednesday morning, looking forward to this Saturday when you can join Trevor Welsh on 96fm.ie for the excitement of the Premier League powered by Talk Sport. We'll bring you exclusive live coverage of Manchester City v Leeds United at 12.30, Liverpool v Aston Villa at 3pm, then it's Crystal Palace v Chelsea at 5.30. The Premier League live online with Now Stream Live Premier League action with a Now Sports or Sports Extra membership. Listen Saturdays on the Cork's 96fm app or go to 96fm.ie. Now, the Network Ireland Businesswoman of the Year Awards are open for submissions. Catherine O'Sullivan, a national winner from 2019, is the West Cork branch president. Catherine, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Fiona. Catherine, tell us what these awards are all about. Okay, so the Network Ireland Businesswoman of the Year Awards are the recognition, really, of um, female um, employees and entrepreneurs across the country um, of achievements and um, the contribution into the economy and um, society for the brilliant work that they're doing within their businesses. So in West Cork, then, we, it's broken down into branches. Um, so in West Cork, we have a branch 
So we'd have branch awards to to recognise the local um, female members initially, and then those winners will go on to the national awards, which would be the All Ireland Awards later in the year. So who exactly are you looking for? Um, we are looking for um, any f- females, really, with actually anyone, because it's mm. so broad. To be honest with you, there's eight categories, and number eight, category number eight, is the Power Within Champion. That really is open to any anyone who has can show resilience and um, um, we'll say strength to have overcome varying challenges. So that's very broad. Um, and to use the power within them to deal with any impacts that they've had. And in the other seven categories, we have two categories for employees, which would be the employee rising star, which would be an employee who is three years or less in their current role, or an employee shining star, which was the, the one I was successful in myself, which is three years or more in the career that they're in at this point in time from the 1st of January. And in the other categories, you have solo businesswoman. Um, so that's open to business owners who are trading for um, three years or more. You have emerging new business, then it's for the new businesses. Um, and then you've established business for um, women who are operating or running business uh, trading for three years or more with two or more employees. And then we have the the other categories, then are the creative professional, which allows for the um, artists, sculptors, music, musicians, etc., um, amongst our members. And then, obviously, very important one is STEM, which is the science, technology, engineering. So it's so broad, everyone can enter. And you won in 2019. What was that like? Um, that was amazing. Um, to be honest, so I was slow to enter. I had to be um, convinced that I should be entering. And in my own head, I kept justifying why was I doing it. I was really only doing it because somebody else was asked, saying that you really should put yourself forward. So I was nearly doing it out of obligation um, rather than feeling that I deserved it. Then I came out of the branch awards, which was overwhelming and didn't expect to do that. And at a national level, then you have interviews. So I had to attend an interview board um, in Dublin ahead of the awards to obviously where you're um, viewed at that point. Mm. Had to answer some questions about my my career and then about me as a person, what I do as a person, and then what I do for the network and what the network would have done for me. That's I kind of break down into those three categories, mm. and it wasn't going through that process, which was very difficult. And I must say, I I felt quite low when I came out of it, thinking I had I done everything right and etc. But um, when I won it, I was um, overwhelmed. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. And, and what was it, it about you that made you stand out from the rest? Well, actually, um, <laughs> what it was, what, and I, that day I had to just rush into the interview, etc. But I told my story as it was. I tend to always believe in honesty and being genuine and doing your hard day's work and just telling your story as it is. And I told my story as it is and what I do on a day-to-day, which I just take for granted and normal that I do, but the judges would have seen it as going above and beyond what was probably necessary as an employee. And after I was uh, won the award, the um, judges were actually present at the conference 
and one came to speak and said that she said we were just amazed by what you actually do. And, and what do you do? <laughs> so what do I do? I, I trained as an accountant yeah. um, and now I'm general manager in um, O'Donnell's. So what in O'Donnell Furniture and Skibbereen, um, oh, so we're exporting out into the UK and Europe into the four-star and five-star hotel industry. But the key piece that was relevant to time that the year that I won it was Brexit was huge and it was, we were exporting 90% of our product into the UK. So this was basically critical to our business and survival and the possibility the business would not survive. So done a lot of work on that. Um, I ended up doing some panel talks with Enterprise Ireland, working with other groups, opening up so that we could learn and getting ready for it and sharing all that information with other people so that they could learn uh, etc as well and the judges were like that's what it's about you're doing everything you can to protect your business but you're also helping other businesses and you're open to doing that um, also and then we're giving back to the network as well so that really was what sold us yeah and now Catherine how do people submit an application for the awards so the, the application forms are online. So you just need to go onto the website, um, complete the application form and basically click submit. Um, the key things really are give yourself time enough and um, you would need just to have a, a photo um, shot of yourself as well as another detail that can catch people at the end. And um, some it's good to put it onto a Word document or something and maybe just get it prepared um, so that you have your Word count and things correct and then just copy and paste it into the document and click submit and the closing date is the 16th of April. Well, it's hugely important because by doing that process and answering questions, it actually makes you stop and think about what you're doing. Yeah. And if you do nothing else, only do that, there's... there's very, very strong chance that you'll actually start to do things even a different way or a better way or more efficient way as you're going forward because that review of your business actually reflecting can give you the boost to realise how much you've actually done and give you the motivation to move forward as well and maybe change things for the better. Everyone should enter. There's nothing to be lost. Great stuff. And details are at networkireland.ie. Catherine, thanks so much for joining us. We're heading to South America, Peru to be precise. That's where Maria Torres is based. Maria is a UCC student and has been selected for an international programme that seeks to empower civic engagement and activism. I wanted to find out a bit more, so I spoke to Maria before we came on air. Maria Torres, welcome to the Opinion Line. Maria, first of all, congratulations. You're one of 40 students from around the world to be selected for this Next Generation Leaders Programme. So how do you feel after being selected? Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. I am really excited to have been selected um, as part of the community. I really hope to... And you are a student of UCC, is that right? Yes. And you're based over in Peru? Yes, I am taking my master's online. It's a part-time program also. And because of the pandemic situation, I had to take it uh, from Peru. Okay. So with this program now, the Next Generation Leaders Program, what exactly is it and what will you be required to do? So this is a conference that is going to be in October of this year. Students that have been selected starting this month to prepare the work that we want to present in October. 
the main objective of this program is to get together for his students in order to talk about and to share their experiences about their civic engagement work. Uh, we are from all over the world. There are students that are interested working in LGBT rights, on indigenous peoples, on climate change. So it's a really diverse network. It's, and let's see how we can change the world together. It's kind of the idea. And what will your contribution be? Like, what's your area of expertise? So I am a lawyer. I have to specialize on Indigenous people's rights. I am uh, servicing as a parliamentary advisor at Commission of Indigenous Peoples at the Congress of the Republic of Peru. We in Peru and probably in, in Latin America, we have a really huge problem about Indigenous identity. Uh, due to assimilationist policies um, over the past two centuries, we have been losing that identity. They are known as poor people, uneducated people, or it's the opposite. Um, I identify now as indigenous. Um, and I think there is a lot of work to do in that area. And you ran in you ran for Congress in Peru last year and your campaign was based on making people aware of the importance of reclaiming indigenous identity. And how did that go? How did that work out for you? Well, it was really an interesting experience. I, I didn't uh, win, but... Okay, con- commiserations. What, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, what I tried to do is uh, to speak with people about the importance of being indigenous of reclaiming this identity. Because here in Peru, 80% of our population descends from indigenous peoples, but only at 25% self-identifies as indigenous. So what I wonder is that maybe if we could change that tip, if we actually reclaim that identity and feel part of indigenous peoples, we might support them uh, in their struggles. How do you think we're doing here in Ireland and in particular in Cork with regards to this issue and how can we improve things? Well, you know, I was actually inspired uh, by Irish people in this retaining of, of my identity because 2017 I participated in the Royal Casement Summer School in Dublin. Mm. So I had to read about casement. After visiting indigenous communities in the Congo and here in Latin America, he realized the impact of colonization. He realized first that he was Irish. He realized that he was part of the Irish nation and he joined the revolution. And I think that there were many people at Royal Casement in those days. I I think they were really important for Irish self-determination. I think we have, we share a lot of similarities. And uh, speaking of your candidacy, uh, Cleona Marr is the UCC International Officer and she said that uh, Maria is an inspiring leader and a wonderful representative for UCC and how a higher education can work towards the sustainable development goals. How does it make you feel to hear that about yourself? Really good. And, you know, I think that it's really great that UCC supports Latin American students. uh, As I said, we have a lot of similarities because we are nations that were uh, colonized. 
it's going to be like 100 years of your independence. In Peru, we are celebrating uh, 200 of independence. But there is a lot of work to do yet. And how is life in Peru these days with the pandemic? Has um, What are things like over there? Well, it's really hard, um, especially for indigenous peoples in rural areas. We don't, we don't have the vaccine. Listen, Maria, thank you so much for that. Thank you to you for the invitation. <laughs> no bother at all. And hopefully you'll make it back over to Cork at some stage. <laughs> yeah. Best of luck to Maria there with everything she does. And that's Wednesday's Opinion Line. Thanks to all the team, Wayne, Terry and Fergal. Back tomorrow just after nine. Have a lovely day today.